Welcome to the 34th Fireside Chat. Thank you, Oliver and Tom. Uh, we'll get right to the questions. We've got quite a few today. Um, the first question comes from Faith N. And that is, she's asking what are dimensions for? And I think by dimensions, she's meaning reality frames. Is each dimension just a different reality frame with a different set of rules? If other reality frames are not as challenging as ours, how could there be any benefits to the higher consciousness? Okay. Well, dimensions is a word that um, I guess means different things to different people. When I use the word uh, dimension, I'm usually talking about uh, a different reality frame, different dimension. Uh, you know, dreaming is a different reality frame, different dimension. Uh, transition reality is a different reality frame, different dimension. So if we let dimension equal reality frame, then every reality frame has its own rule set, its own clock. So that would be one thing. Now, that's a different idea of dimension than, say, spatial dimension. You know, we live in a 3D, um, three uh, mutually parallel unit vectors define our 3D reality. And that's now... Um, a different kind of, of dimension. That's just spatial dimension. And you can have 4D and 5D and 6D, except those all are just mathematical logic. We can't experience anything but 3D and 2D and 1D. We, can, we don't actually experience the 2D and the 1D either, but we can imagine it. We can't imagine 4D and up if we're talking uh, special dimensions. Uh, Space-time is often called a four-dimensional uh, existence. But that's not four spatial dimensions. It's just three spatial dimensions and one dimension of time. So it kind of depends on what you what she means by dimension. Now I've you know uh, in the New Age community that dimension is used in a lot of different language. You know we there's I don't know there's lots of different ways that it can see. So I don't know exactly what she means by that word. It appears she's. Um suggesting that it's just a different virtual reality with a different set of rules. Um, she asked then if, if other virtual realities aren't as challenging as ours, how could there be any benefits to the higher consciousness or what you call the larger consciousness system? Okay, well, it depends on what it is you're trying to do and who's trying to do it. Okay, uh, for the most part, ours is more challenging because it's more... A tighter rule set. We have more rules, but that works really well for what we do here in the way we're doing it. In a dream reality, that's got some advantages and disadvantages. That gives us something else. Now, it's a, it's a uh, less tight rule set. In the dream reality, we can fly, we can teleport, um, you know, we can do all sorts of things that we couldn't do here. And that's good because we can also have experiences and make choices there that we couldn't make here. So it's another reality frame where you can make a different kind of choice. So you wouldn't want just one kind of reality frame, and that was all you had. See, in the dream reality, you know, suddenly you're in a burning building, and you have to decide what to do. Do you run out and save yourself, or do you go up the stairs to the other levels and tell them that, that it's on fire to help save them? You see, it's a choice. And 
you wouldn't want to do that in this reality because in this reality that would you know a big fire in an apartment building would be a terrible thing and a lot of people would suffer and so on in a dream reality you get to do that with very few consequences to the fire but the decision is the same it's the same choice you're making with the same free will and it counts just as much as making a free will choice here so in that reality a much uh, less tight rule set is valuable to us because we can do things there we can't do here. We can make choices there that we don't have here. At least we don't have them very often. Uh, or we have them there that would be rather destructive and you know disruptive if we did those here. So that's why you have lots of different realities. And sometimes you have a different reality like the transition reality that's there just for a very single purpose. And that's to help people transition from you know this experience packet to the next one. And that's all it does. So, you know, they have different reasons, different purposes, and um, it's not like one of them is more useful. So why have all the rest of them? You need the you need the uh, diversity of experience. That's why you have lots of reality frames. And in the out of body frame, is more of a you know it's more of a a um, I don't know we call it a free frame maybe. Uh, you get to you get to uh, Create your own reality, I guess. You go to get to explore and see things and do things that uh, uh, are unique to you. So that's another opportunity to make choices within a different context of choice. And even though the other reality frames, as you say, there are some nicer reality frames and and uh, places, and there are some more challenging ones, or 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 very rough ones. So even though there are um, reality frames that have less challenges than perhaps ours does, they all have a particular purpose. Yes, and that, that, that difference in the ones that are more or less challenging that I was talking about, that's not so much the reality frame that's different as it is what's evolved there that's different. So if you go to a reality frame where what has evolved there is a lot of peace and light and cooperation, then that's a much kinder, gentler, you know, uh, easier frame to work in. It's not as challenging in some ways. If you go to a frame where everything is dark and, and you know, full of fear and, and um, you know, no trust, it's a, it's a very kind of black, nasty, uh, unpleasant place to be, then that's a much harder reality to get along in because it's what, but that's not because of the reality frame. That's because of what evolved in that particular reality frame. Our own reality frame is sometimes more gentle and sometimes more challenging to us. You know, it's, uh, that's, that's really not a frame issue. That's more of an evolution issue. So really um, her question of, how could there be any benefits? Well, this the reality frame that's evolved to more peaceful uh, existence did so. Uh, that is the benefit to the larger consciousness system. They evolved that way. So that is the benefit. Yeah. Well, there's the, benefit in diversity. There's a benefit there, and then there's, a, there's something that's a little harder there. If you're in a, a sweet, peaceful reality frame, then you don't have the same sort of challenges that you have here. On the other hand, you have more opportunities there than you have here to express your own, you know, cooperation and and uh, and love and caring. So it's you know, there's things to learn. You learn by diversity. 
you don't learn by everything being the same way. It's good to be in different places that have different contexts because that forces you then to make a different set of choices and all those choices are valuable. Okay, I think that answers Faith's question pretty well. Another question she has involves the a larger consciousness system as well. Is there a hierarchy within the system? Who makes the decisions and how is it managed? Yeah, there is a hierarchy. You need some hierarchy because whenever you have a system that's rule-based that contains consciousness with free will, then you you have to have rules of things you know that can and can't be done in various reality frames or between frames because that's the nature of you know, of structure. Whenever you have structure, structure is really defined by rules. So as you have a structured reality, you have a reality with rules, and that requires an executive uh, function to enforce those rules, to make the rules in the first place, and then enforce them. You see, so we can just call that the operating system. It's an executive uh, subset, if you will, of the larger consciousness system that then is the operating system or the, the manager, um, or if we want to use the business uh, metaphor like I did in my books, you know, as the CEO uh, has certain decisions to make. And any organization requires that. If you have an organization of free will entities, you cannot get by with, you know, no management without anybody making decisions in a global sense. Everybody just making decisions in a, in, a, in a local, individual sense isn't enough. You also have to have a plan, a bigger plan uh, from the perspective of the biggest picture. And as that picture gets smaller and smaller, um, then, you know, you have a different you know, kind of the plans change, a different set of circumstances, a different set of, of constraints. So at the very highest level, you have the larger consciousness system which is a whole system of which we're a part, but at the highest level, it's like an executive uh, uh, part of that system that has to manage the whole, decide what's good, decide that, well, what we really need is a virtual reality game in order to give people a more uh, um, uh, valuable experience than they get just in the big chat room of consciousness talking to consciousness. So they needed to have an executive level that decided that would be a good idea and then proceeds to evolve a virtual reality that will serve as that purpose. You see, that's, that, uh, that needs to take place. And there are some, you know, there is some strata. There are, uh, uh, you know, you have that's the, that's the highest level. And then there's some various kinds of, of experiments going on in consciousness at various other levels. Each one kind of has its own administrator, if you will. So there's maybe two, maybe three deep, but not more than that. You know, two or three. It's not like you have, uh, you know, a, a president and then vice, senior vice presidents and vice presidents and division chiefs and branch chiefs and section chiefs. And, you know, this big stack of... Uh, of hierarchy or like in the military from, you know, five-star generals down to privates, you have this huge, you know, 10 or 15, 20 step hierarchy. It's not like that. There's just a couple of levels, not a, not a lot of levels. It's a very flat organizational structure, but um, someone has to be in charge. Otherwise, uh, eventually entropy starts to uh, creep in 
and then eventually you have something that doesn't work anymore. All right. I'm going to move on to another question that Faith had. Um, Abraham Hicks, which is, I guess, a channeled entity, says that Hitler did a service to consciousness by taking on his role. We accept that there is no hell or any punishment. And if I could just interject something here, well, I think your take on this is, well, there's no punishment as described by various religious dogmas. Uh, there are serious downsides to your choices. Anyway, uh, she goes on to say, why would Source create Hitler to cre to kill and torture others? Do you agree with Abraham Hicks um, regarding her explanation of Hitler's role? Well, uh, that question confuses a couple of things. One, why would Source mm -hmm. create a Hitler? Source doesn't create Hitlers. Hitler created Hitler. You see, it's not that source doesn't create everything. We're not the, the, you know, the larger conscious system doesn't create things. And then the, it's puppets. You know, it doesn't make a bunch of puppets and then has a puppet play, you know, with all the little puppets doing what they want. Now, here's the Hitler puppet, you know, and here's the, you know, Mahatma Gandhi puppet. And we, you know, it doesn't work like that. This is a place of free will. So all the various entities here, all the IUOCs have free will to, to be and become whatever they be and become based on their choices. And Hitler made choices that, you know, and other people made choices that caused, you know, the, the rise of, uh, of Hitler and his uh, war machine. That's just, you know, the way it works. It's not that, you know, the system put a Hitler there. It just happened. The system gives us free will, and then the system lets us go and see what we can do with it. And sometimes we do things that are that are wonderful, and sometimes we do things that are harmful. But that's not the point. But yes, I do agree with Abraham Hicks in a sense. You can always find a silver lining in any black cloud. There's always, you know, other ways to look at it. If you look at it just from the destruction and the needless lives lost, then it seems like a, you know, a, a great calamity. But you also can look at it as all the wonderful things done, the lessons learned. The uh, you know what we have what we've we've grown from uh, a very obvious bad example of how not to create governments, how not to have you know attitudes that um, you know racism is not a good thing. You see, we have lots of these examples that helps all the rest of us grow up, and we had lots of people during that World War Two that did heroic things, wonderful things that uh, sacrificed themselves and, and their fortunes to help other people. So we had a lot of that going on too. So if you want to look at the, at the, the uh, silver lining in that cloud, and like I say, any, any cloud, no matter how dark, will have a silver lining. No matter bad it is, it can always serve as a, you know, as a good, bad example of what not to be and how not to act and what kind of choices not to make. So people just are who they are. Uh, history and time and individuals happen to create, you know, what's been created in the past. We make our choices. And yes, some horrible things happen. And hopefully we'll learn from those. You see, that's the nature of growing up here is that we learn from experience. So we learn from experience individually and we learn from experience collectively. So we as human beings had a lot to learn from our collective experience of wars. And that's not just World War II, but wars from the, you know, 
thousands and thousands of years ago. Wars are always an educational opportunity for the rest of us to look at it and say, we sure don't want to go there again. And why? And understand what the problems were. What was wrong with the thinking? Why did that happen that way? You see, it's very, uh, very helpful. So in that sense, then Abraham Hicks is what he's saying is that that can be looked at from the point of what it gave of the of the uh, good that came out of that, rather than look at it from the harm that it did and the you know and the horror that it created. Yes, it did both. So the, there's positive as well as negative in everything. Even if some evil thing happens, that's that's there's some good that can come out of it on the other side. Now sometimes there's there's more evil than there is good out of a particular event. But I can't think of any event where it's impossible to have something good come out of it. All right, Tom. I think I'll move on to a question from Ivan D. Um, he has he's, he's putting his heretical question in quotation marks. Um, to me, heresy is a, a dogma-laden word from a religious belief system. So he's using that as a quote um, heretical. Um, he asks that um, I do not rephrase what I wrote in order that the coherence of the question remains exactly as it is. This is a statement from a thread uh, that he posted. So I will quote, Free will does not exist. It is an empty concept. Here's why. A mental process is like every other process. Is a succession of changes of state. A change of state can happen either causally, determinism, or randomly, randomness. A sequence of changes of state can also be a mixture of both determinism and randomness, which is to say that part of the events happen randomly without causation. <clears throat> or the state changes can happen according to a probabilistic pattern. However, none of those theoretical possibilities gives you free will. And here, it does not even matter whether consciousness is fundamental or not. He asks that you comment on this. Okay. I'm sorry, you're not done yet? Is there more? Well, he, he did say that, um, yes, he does want your comment on this. He did say, but note that there might be people out there who like Tom um, and agree with some parts of his MBT, but at the same time have objections like mine. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've run across this, you know, dozens and dozens of times. Um, mm -hmm. It started with a, a uh, I think, a psychologist researcher named Lebet, L-E-B-I-T, or Lebet, or L-E-B-E-T, um, whether that's Libet or Libet depends whether you're French or not. And uh, he did some experiments where he saw that at the micro level of the tiny little uh, electrical potentials in the muscles, that the muscles began to move in response to something before the stimulus that was going to cause that response started. In other words, uh, raise your hand when you hear the bell ring. Okay, so if that's the if that's the uh, job we have, we're going to raise our hand whenever we hear the bell ring. He noticed that little tiny potentials that are needed to start moving the muscles begin to happen before the bell rang. 
in order for the person to raise their, their hand. So he concluded that there is no free will because the, the beginning of the motion started before the stimulus, before the bell rang. Okay. So how could there be free will? So he came on the side of determinism, and that proves there is no free will. What it proves, actually, is that LeBay, or Libet, had no concept of consciousness, or he didn't have a, a correct concept of consciousness. His consciousness was basically limited to what we call the free will awareness unit, which is just a subset of a subset. We have the larger conscious system that has a subset called a individuated unit of consciousness, which has a subset of a free will awareness unit. And what he discovered was that the avatar, see, he, doesn't know, he didn't know this was a virtual reality and that our bodies were avatars either. So what he thought is that the avatar doesn't seem to have any free will. Well, he's right. The avatar has no free will. The avatar is a bunch of ones and zeros in a computer. The avatar doesn't even exist. It's consciousness, you see, that makes all the choices for the avatar. So in the avatar's body, the avatar's body started to show signs of motion before the bell rang. Well, that's the computer trying to get the body to move, the avatar to move, because it, it, it has to abide by the rule set, which is our biology, okay, so that there's less video lag. It starts it a little ahead of time, so there's no video lag. It just makes the it makes our reality a little smoother and works better. So that's what LeBay measured. And uh, he thought that the avatar really was a real thing, and that consciousness somehow was created by the body. And therefore, since the body is fundamental, that creates consciousness. And the consciousness, which he was thinking was somehow part of the physical system, physical consciousness, if you will, he came to the wrong conclusion because he had the wrong idea about how that works. So that's all there is there. And of course, there's free will. It makes no sense not to have free will. If you don't have free will, then you don't have choice. If you don't have choice, you can't have consciousness. Consciousness is about choice. If you don't have choice, you also don't have before and after. Okay? So it lines up like this, Donna. There's, there's a couple of sets of philosophical big-picture terms that belong together and that are opposites, are contradictory to each other. Okay? The concept of free will, of consciousness, and of time all are necessary for each other. So consciousness needs choice. A choice requires a before and after. Otherwise, the choice doesn't mean anything. So that requires time. And you see, without free will, consciousness has nothing to do. It can't make a choice. Free will require is, is what the choice is. So what is consciousness if it can't make a choice? It's nothing. So you see, free will, consciousness, and time all are logically necessary for each other. You can't get rid of any one of those without getting rid of all of them. They all depend on each other. On the other hand, you have materialism and determinism. Okay? Now, if you are a materialist, you must be a determinist, or you're logically inconsistent, and vice versa. You cannot have materialism without determinism. 
You cannot have determinism without materialism. But if you have determinism or you know, materialism, if you're in that group, then you have to deny that there's such a thing as free will or consciousness or time. And yes, we can hear scientists say there's no such thing as time. Time is just an illusion. Okay, That came out with Minkowski time, where time they have as a series of, of uh, slices, and physics comes on that side of there is no time. Time is illusion. Physics can't describe consciousness. That's the hard problem. And most physicists, or a lot of physicists, have just given up and say there is no consciousness. Consciousness is just an illusion. Okay, so consciousness and time and free will have all been decried as illusions by the materialists and the determinists who are in one camp. Now, if you think that there is consciousness, time, and free will, then the only conclusion is determinism and materialism is an illusion. You see, each one of those two camps sees the other as an obvious illusion that can exist. If there is consciousness and time and free will, then materialism and determinism cannot exist. They're just illusions. People just think that this is a material world, but it isn't really. And they just think that things are deterministic, but it isn't really. So those are the two camps, you see. And obviously, LeBay, LeBet, uh, was on the side of the determinist materialist side, and therefore they jumped to the conclusion quite quickly that there was no free will. And scientists have been trying to support that from the beginning because it was incompatible with their belief in materialism. So when LeBay came to the point where he said, oh, look, I got proof for it, everybody jumped on that bandwagon and, you know, declared uh, victory and, and went on. So his ideas got very popular, and other people He's not the only one, but other people did other similar experiments to prove that avatars that are nothing but ones and zeros on a computer don't have free will, which, you know, yes, they don't, but consciousness does, you see. So that's the difference. So if you think there is no free will, then you must also think that there is materialism, there is determinism, and you're stuck in that old philosophy uh, that's been around a long time, and uh, kind of Newton was the was the champion of it, uh, as it became science, and you have not moved on past the point where quantum mechanics, double slit experiment, says that idea is wrong because you cannot have a double slit experiment and have materialism and determinism because the double slit experiment says that is just not the way the world works. And that experiment has been done thousands and thousands of times by probably every university on the planet and it always works the same way. So here we have science saying materialism and determinism is wrong. Okay? So saying that there is no free will, see, that puts you in that camp. And science says you're wrong. So that's my viewpoint. And it's not just a double slit experiment. Scientists over the last decade have been falling over themselves with this idea of Determinism and materialism is wrong. That virtual reality is right. That's the new big idea in science. That's the only idea that explains the results of the experiments that scientists are getting. So 
that's kind of your choice. So if there's no free will, then you're a determinist, you're a materialist, and the modern science we have today says you're wrong. Now, Labette and the others that did their experiments, they just didn't understand what they were talking about. They thought that there was a, a, a physical, you know, their avatar was the real thing. Consciousness was a creation of that. And therefore, they came to wrong conclusions because they had wrong assumptions. It's just that simple. And I know your experiments that have come out that you uh, demonstrated at MBTLA and that you are working on now are also going to show that materialism is wrong. There's one experiment in particular that's going to highlight that particularly uh, well. Um, sure. The several, of the one, yeah. several of the ones I brought out at MBTLA, that's the only rational conclusion you can come to. If the experiments work, the way I say they do, then there is no rational answer other than this is a virtual reality. It's the only way to explain how those would work. Uh, and even if they don't come out the way I think they will, even the double slit experiment and the delayed erasure experiments and all the hundreds of experiments that have been done, they already claim that this materialism and determinism can't give the answers. If you talk to a, a physicist now over at CERN, they will tell you, and I'm getting this from a, a video of scientists at CERN having a discussion. They will tell you that if you think that an electron is a material particle with a charge, you cannot compute the right answer. It doesn't work. That's materialism. It doesn't work. If you consider it to be a point with the attributes of charge and, and mass, you can compute the right answers. You see, one of them is a materialist view. The other one is a probabilistic view. One of them is a, is a compute, computed view. An electron in a simulation is a point with attributes of mass and charge. That's what an electron would be represented as in a simulation, in a virtual reality. So only the ideas that you get from virtual reality seem to work now in modern science. So that's, yes, it's... It's pretty clear. It's not like I even have to come up with new experiments to demonstrate this is a virtual reality. There are hundreds of experiments already demonstrate this is a virtual reality. It's just that um, scientists are some of the of those dragging their feet. But, you know, a lot of scientists are changing their mind. A lot of scientists now all over the world think virtual reality is the right answer. Uh, that a, a reality based on information, which is a virtual reality by definition, is the only thing that makes sense. So it's not, you know, when I say scientists have this, this uh, belief about uh, determinism and materialism, and it's hard for them to let go of that belief, that's true. But, you know, they are now still the majority, but I suspect in less than a decade, they'll be in the minority. And in probably two decades, they'll be not only in the minority, but, you know, kind of the people that just don't get it. They'll, they won't be taken very seriously anymore because there just isn't anything that verifies that that's the truth. So anyhow, you know, times are changing. So if you really want to believe that there's no free will, you know, then you and some other scientists will agree to that. But then you have to say that there also is no consciousness and that you're not conscious. Your consciousness is an illusion. There's no time. Time is an illusion. You know, all the things that you know and experience out there they're all illusions, you see. So that's the; those are the two choices. 
Okay, I like the fact that virtual reality concept that you support supports spirituality. It it supports the concept of a higher intelligence, um, and yet you'll see sometimes individuals who claim they are all for consciousness and free will, and yet their outlook is materialism, determinism. So there's sure. a bit of a conflict there. Yeah, you see that a lot, Donna, because it's hard to give up old beliefs. So even though, as I've just explained, you can't be partly in in those two two opposite camps, those two opposite camps of determinism and materialism and the time, consciousness, and free will, those two camps are just logically incompatible with each other. So for you to say, well, I don't believe in free will, but I do believe in consciousness. And, you know, I don't know about time, but determinism, you know, you know, I, you know, I like that or I don't, or materialism I don't like, but determinism I do. You see, that's just being logically inconsistent. But in times of change, as people move from one set of ideas, one paradigm to another, you should expect lots of logical inconsistencies where people don't really know that they're being logically inconsistent, that determinism and materialism are logically inconsistent with the other side and that you can't be a, you can't think materialism is bad, but determinism is good. You see, those two things are logically necessary for each other. So it's, it's, that's why I'm kind of laying this logic out. But yes, there's lots of, of people who are logically inconsistent. They'll pick some things they like and some things they don't on both sides out of both camps. And that makes them feel better for the moment because they're not ready to give up consciousness, but they really don't like free will either. They just are logically inconsistent. Well, I would suggest to those that have a foot in both camp that they read your My Big Toe because you have painstakingly set out a very logical explanation of why it is how you describe it to be. Well, let's move on to another question here with a more human interest sort of aspect to it. Um, question from Explorer81. My question is about love-based and fear-based decisions about pain and suffering. I'm faced with the possibility of splitting up my family. There are many little details that could change the outcomes, but I'll get into the two main ideas. He feels he has two options. I keep the family together. His wife wants to move back to her home country to take care of her elderly parents. However, I would be moving back to a very negative environment for me. My two young daughters would have their dad around with option one. Option two, I stay in the U.S. and work on building a life for us. My wife and daughters move back. My two young daughters don't have their dad around. Um, I feel like moving back somewhere we've already lived for eight years would be a huge backward step for me, personally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Going back to this toxic environment would not seem to be growth for me. On the other hand, I understand my wife's feelings, why she would want to go back and care for her parents even though we decided long ago and moved to the U.S. just six months ago. I'm deeply saddened at the possibility of not being around for my two, two daughters. I also don't want them growing up in this toxic environment. So his question boils down to, how do you decide what to do when your gut tells you to do one thing, but your brain calculates that others will undergo pain and suffering because of your choice? How do you tell the difference between a love-based decision and a fear-based decision? 
In that situation, it's probably very difficult. Um, perhaps if you had evolved to the point where you didn't have fear, it would be obvious. But in as much as you're you know, a normal, average kind of person that you have a fair amount of fear and ego and belief in your system, then it's going to be very hard to tell the difference. You're going to see that no matter what you do, somebody suffers. The, there's often life choices like that. There is no choice where everybody's happy. You know, that typically is not the way uh, relationship uh, problems like this work out. There's going to be somebody that's going to have to suffer some because there is no solution where everybody's just totally happy with it. So I would say that you look at the long-term effects for everybody. And particularly for those other than, you know, for, for those other than yourself, look at everybody and say, what is the long-term, long-term, three, four, five years from now, six years from now, you know, what is that going to do to my daughters? What's that going to do to me? What's it going to do to my wife if I do it this way or the, or the other way? Then t- try to get an understanding of where the minimum entropy path is. That's not going to be where everybody's happy. That's going to be the minimum entropy for the whole, for the group of you, for all of you together and all of the people you interact, including her parents that need help. You see, they have to be included in that too. It's not just you and it's not just you and your daughters. It's you, your wife, your daughters, your friends, your neighbors, uh, the people back in this other country, um, you know, her parents, her parents, friends, brothers, sisters, all the people that are involved in it. When it's all said and done five years from now, you know, what's going to be the sum total of the loss and the gains in terms of entropy? That's the best way to look at it. Now, that's going to be hard to do intellectually because you just don't know how a lot of things are going to work out. You're probably better off to do that in feeling, with intuition. Go into a meditation state and explore like in the future probable reality, explore the possibilities of each one of your scenarios and maybe look for other scenarios that you haven't thought of yet. Maybe there's other scenarios that, uh, you know, maybe there's a third or fourth choice uh, other than just those two main choices that are a combination of both and come out with a, with a uh, minimum of entropy. So use your meditation Try to just feel how it might work out over several years, where it could go. Don't look just at the short term, because if she has to take care of aging parents, then that probably means the aging parents aren't going to need to be taken care of, but for a certain amount of time. If they need that much help, then they probably uh, have a limited lifespan at that point. Now, I don't know that. You know, Maybe they were you know, hurt in an accident, and otherwise they're perfectly healthy. But whatever the situation is, you have to look at all the possibilities and look at it five years what's likely to be happening five years ten years and how does it affect us and if we do have to suffer some can we come back and regroup and get back to where we were and how hard is that or how easy is that and what will we learn and what are the upsides and downsides and then make your your decision based on what you feel is the best for everybody, taking everybody, including her parents, into consideration. What is that? And be willing to be the one that does most of the suffering. 
be willing to do to be the one that can shoulder the hardship better than others. Okay, you probably you the husband of this family can probably shoulder more hardship and more difficulty than can you know your wife or your daughters or her parents. So if that's the case, then shoulder what you can. It's not like everybody has to you know suffer the same amount. That's not it. It's you know how is everybody going to come out of this best in the end? So if you can shoulder more of that suffering yourself because you know that you're going to be able to come out of it at the end. It's not going to dominate you. It's not going to twist your life because you know which end is up and you're going to come out of it at the end of all of that. Okay. You'll be able to get back to where you want to go. Maybe it sets you back a few years, but eh, that's not a big deal. It sets you back, you know, because it's not the end point we get to. It's the choices we make in the process. So this will be part of your process. It'll give you a different set of choices. It'll give your wife and your children a different set of choices. It gives the parents a different set of choices. So you look at the whole, the whole thing and uh, don't just come to a conclusion of what's best for you because then that would be your ego talking and, you know, you put yourself ahead of everybody else. But look at what's going to be best for everybody in the long term, given their ability to deal with hardships, your ability to deal with them, their ability to bounce back, your ability to bounce back. Do it in a meditation state. Use the feeling, not the intellect. The intellect, you'll just get so wadded up that you won't know what's going on. You won't be able to tell the fear from the, you know, from the, uh, from the love with your intellect. Feel it. Don't think it. And don't just do it once or twice. Spend the next month feeling it. You know, every day go into go into the kind of a meditation state and see where this goes and see how it affects everyone and who can recover and who doesn't. You see, those kinds of things. So that's how I would suggest that you do it. Uh, feeling space will be much more accurate than thinking space. Thank you, Tom. Considering... Um... Moving on to another relationship-centered question. Um, we have a question from Channel 79 on monogamy. And then I will move on to Vanessa, who is here from Canada, with her two questions. You'll follow this. All right, Vanessa. Um, Channel 79 asks, Humans normally place great importance on significant relationships being exclusively between two people at a time. Also, a few other PMR species form monogamous relationships. My understanding gathered from a Bashtar's transcript, and that is a channeled information being, uh, is that at a time in the past, most human incarnations were made by beings from negative and troubled parts of the MPMR. In their realities, it was difficult to achieve trust between one another, and so they would form a very close and reliable relationship with just one other individual. This culture started reflecting into our PMR as they were incarnating here, and this is what we are still affected by today, is the so-called transcript message. His question one is, if Boshtar's tale is somewhat true, then would that mean that monogamy is a more fearful approach to significant relationships, or is any approach neutral and dependent upon intent? And question two, how's, 
Go ahead. Do the question one first. Yeah, question, yeah, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty long one. Yeah, we got we got yeah. point B here. Okay. okay. Um, take Bashar's comments, you know, as metaphors. Okay. You have to learn when you when you get information from the larger consciousness system, it comes in terms of metaphors. So understand that these kinds of things are metaphorical, not necessarily literal. So they're telling you a story about the way things are. It's not necessarily the literal story that you should be paying attention to, but you should be you'd be paying attention to the intent of the story. You know the uh, you know the meaning of the story in terms of metaphor and symbol. So that's one thing. Uh, but the the basic question there. Is you know is this monogamy um, like a more fearful approach, or is it uh, you know is it neither here nor there? And I would say that most of this, most of the the uh, uh, gender attitudes and sexual attitudes that we have, and the way we we pair up, they tend to be about. 70% instinct and about 30%, you know, uh, cultural. So we have a cultural overlay on top of fundamental instincts. And that overlay, that mixture can turn into many different things, many different ways. What we have in our culture is an odd mixture of both of those. Okay, we have some of we have some of both of those extremes, and we live both of those extremes. So we're not really one or the other so much. Um, if you look at the instinctual part of it and see how do you know how do males uh, get their genetic material? Now we're just looking at biology, right? This is the instinctual part of it. How do males get their genetic material to go forward in time? In other words, how do they? How do they have children and those children survive to have children? That's their genetic material surviving. Okay, that's that's the idea in biology that you in our in our um, in our uh, world is that procreate and survive. Okay, that's the key thing that uh, all the animals are trying to do. All the living things actually are are trying to do. So one way to do that would be for a male to impregnate as many females as possible just on the chance that some of them would survive. See, that's one strategy. And that means that, uh, you know, the male would not be particularly selective. It's just as many children that he could create in the world, then the higher the probability that some of them would survive to create more children. Okay, that's one strategy. But that strategy has a downside in that, Children that uh, don't have any father to take care of them or protect them have a much lower probability of surviving. Now, on the other hand, if a if the male wants to make sure that his child is going to survive because he's going to feed him and protect him and take care of him, uh, then he just can't have children with every female that accepts him. He has to have that in located in one spot where he can take care of it. Then he needs a monogamous situation where he has children and he can protect 
take care of those children to make sure they survive and go on, not just leaving it to, well, I hope they survive. You know, he can make sure that they survive or at least do the best he can to make sure. So you see, he has two strategies there that are quite different, but both of those strategies will help him get his genetic material to survive, to move on through the, you know, through the uh, process of passing it on from child, you know, parent to child, the parent becomes a parent and child and keeps going on like that. So what do men do? Well, instincts just want the, you know, the human race to keep going. Instincts are made to keep our species alive. Their instincts, human instincts, are on a species level, not an individual level. Instincts really don't care how it's done as long as it works. Well, both of those strategies work, so both of those strategies are used. Now, when it comes to the cultural overlays, what sort of strategy works best during, you know, in what kind of culture, at what kind of times, and what kind of environment, now you get mixtures of all of those things. So now we're just talking about um, the male's role. Now, in the female's role, the female wants to collect or wants to have the uh, optimal quality sperm. She wants to have a child that is going to be healthy and strong and, you know, all the things it takes to survive. She doesn't want a child that's going to be weak and, you know, have a lot of problems and is not likely to survive. Very harsh times. So the female is looking for what we'll just call high-quality sperm. She's, she's looking for the sperm that's going to create a child that's going to make it because that's the only way she gets to move her genetics through into the future, right? So what's the two ways that she can do that? Well, there's several. She can, whenever she runs into a man that impresses her as being particularly hardy and hale and uh, survivable, then she'd want to have his child because that would give her a baby that's going to be hardy and hale and more survivable. See? So now we have the female who, whether she's married or whether she's with a man in a, in a monogamous relationship or not, when she sees a man that has really high-quality sperm, she's going to want to get pregnant by that man. Okay? And on the other hand, she also knows that if her children are going to survive, then she better have a man to help feed them, you know, provision them, protect them, and protect her. Because as she has children, now we're talking about these instincts were created, not yesterday, but like, you know, two or 300,000 years ago. Okay, so you have to think in the environment two or 300,000 years ago. Okay, she was always pregnant. She's had multiple, four, five, six, seven children all the time. She was always nursing, always pregnant, always taking care of children. That's really hard to survive when you're busy taking care of those children to also be, you know, fighting the bears, uh, getting the foods, you know, protecting and so on. She needed help. So she needs a man that will stick by her and protect her individually and her children in particular, you see, not just get pregnant from somebody that has good sperm and then they walk off and now she's stuck trying to take care of kids and can't feed any of them, you see, can't uh, protect any of them. So you see both males and females have instincts that make them go both ways. They have instincts toward, toward pair bonding and taking care of each other 
And they also have instincts toward wandering out of that pair bond, you see? And we see that in our culture. If we look at our culture and say, well, you know, how many females have had, you know, extramarital affairs and how many males have had extramarital affairs? And you'll find that it's a greater number than 50% on both sides. Well, that's because that's part of our genetics, part of our instincts push us in that direction. Our culture pushes us in the direction of pair bonding, monogamous relationships. So I don't think it's as simple as just saying, well, there's two ways to be and one way is more fearful than the other. We have genetics that push us in multiple directions. And depending on how we you know, deal with those. Now, just because you have an instinct doesn't mean you have to do that. It means you have a proclivity. You kind of have a, a notion toward that, but you can still say no or yes to it. You see, you're in charge. It's a free will choice. So that's a bigger picture of it. It isn't as simple as what you described, and it doesn't just break out as one as a high, you know, as a more fearful way than the other. That's kind of simplifying it to the point and probably worked fine in Basher's metaphor, but now you're taking that metaphor and you're applying it in more detail, and it's, the metaphor starts to break apart. So I think that's, that's the problem you're getting to. So see that we as humans are complex. We have instincts that are pushing us in multiple ways in any given culture or situation within a culture that we're in, and we have free will we get to decide what way is best for us. What way is going to help us, our children, survive and go on. And now we don't just want them to survive. We want them to be healthy. We don't want them to be neurotic. We don't want them to be, you know, unhappy. So how do you do that? What's the best way to manage that? And now our, our, um, intelligence comes in and says, well, how do I optimize that? Okay, here's the situation. We're in the 21st century. You know, here's the way things are. Here's the culture I live in. Now, how can I best make good decisions that optimizes myself, you know, and the people that I care about, which would be spouse, family, you know, other people, parents, friends, neighbors, brothers and sisters, how do I deal with all of this in a way that optim that's optimal? And sometimes you have to tell your instincts to sit down and be quiet, and sometimes you have to encourage them to step up. It's just part of the choices that you have to make. So it's very complicated. No, it's not that one way is superior and the other way isn't. There's lots of different ways that we can go about surviving and procreating here and we have to make the right choices at the right time with the right people. So it depends. It all gets down to the right people. So if you have a bunch of people who are very supportive of each other, you know, like in a Heinlein book, I don't know if you've read any of Heinlein books, you know, Heinlein is kind of a, uh, an author that does science fiction, but it's always got a, a free love motif running along behind in his storylines. And he has very intelligent people who all love and care for each other. And there's never any jealousy. There's, you know, it's all cooperation, caring and love and peace. And they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have any of the other stresses of fear or ego uh, or beliefs getting in the way. So within that kind of group, 
then you would maybe come to a different conclusion of the best way to live your life than you would in a group where there's plenty of ego and plenty of fear going around and you have to deal with that. So now you have to make decisions that take into account the fear and the ego and the beliefs of the people you're interacting with, you see? So it depends on who individuals involved and on where, you know, what's their environment? What's their, you know, what, are the, what sort of environment do they have to work within? And then you can decide whether monogamy or something else is really most advantageous. But none of it is necessary. Necessarily, this is most right and this is most wrong, or, you know, here's the best way to be and here's the worst way to be. It's a whole lot more complicated than that. All right, Tom, we'll move on to the second part of his question, which is, how similar is our mainly monogamous culture to the ones in other physical and non-physical realities? Well, I guess that's a pretty good question. I don't have to think back at the other realities that I've been in, where I've been there long enough and got deeply enough connected to people to be able to answer that question. Typically, you go in and out of a reality Fairly quickly. It's not like you spend years there. You generally spend, you know, hours there or days there. And that's not really enough to get a sense of that kind of depth. But the places that I have been where I've interacted with families, the families tended to be very much the way they are here. It's not a lot different. You know, there are some on either side. We have people who are monogamous. And uh, those who are monogamous for their entire life are probably a small minority. But they're monogamous on and off through most of their life. You know, they're not necessarily only that way, but they're that way more or less most of the time. That's kind of the typical. That's your average person. Okay? So the families that I have been with and other realities kind of fit right into that. They uh, basically uh, have bonds with each other. They take care of each other. They're supportive of each other because that is a, a winning strategy for them in that situation. But I don't doubt that there are others in different situations that see it differently. So um, I'd say I haven't really spent enough in-depth time to really answer that question. My sense would be that it's very similar to the way it is here because I, when I've been to these other places, I've never had a, oh, wow, that's different. That's really weird. They do it that way. You know, I've never had that kind of feeling. It's always been everything as far as relationships goes pretty much like it is here. <laughs> 